behind some prison wall and some prison bars, mostly in solitary confinement, there's 2,400 people, give or take, today who are on death row. 2,400 plus or minus on death row. Maybe guilty, maybe not. Presumably, there's umpteen thousands of others who might should be behind those walls and behind those bars awaiting that sentence. 2,400 people on death row roughly today since 1973. 196 people have been released from death row. They have been proven not guilty of the crime that landed them on death row. And much to their thankfulness, those people before their sentence of execution was enacted were released. All 196 of them had the exact same visceral internal response probably with an external expression of jubilation and joy can you imagine the gavel being smashed for you to be released from death row those 196 people since 1973 have felt that what if i told you that since genesis chapter 3 Millions upon millions of confirmed guilty criminals have been exonerated and set free. I prayed today that you would take a gospel bath, that you would so soak in the deep realities of the love of God for helpless guilty sinners that your soul would feel like those 196. A visceral, irresistible, uncontainable response of jubilation and joy that the guilty has been set free. To that end, you can watch and listen, you can read and follow, you do what you want to do, but I invite you with great joy to hear one of the mountaintop paragraphs that's ever been written in the history of the world. This is one of the best compilation of words that have ever been strung together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself 
according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That's got to be one of the best compilation of words that's ever been strung together in the history of humanity. Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask that you would cause the realities of the real gospel of the real God to so flood our hearts that we spontaneously worship you and exult in you. Just like happened to the Apostle Paul when he wrote that passage. That he was not just writing, he was primarily worshiping. Gladden our hearts with a deeper awareness, maybe a first-time awareness, that you have been pleased to pour your entire triune self into our salvation. Get us out of our own way. I pray that you'll get everybody here out of their own self-absorbed thoughts. Set us free for a few minutes from caring what anybody else thinks about us. Captivate us with yourself. Oh Lord, fill our souls and fill this church with the gospel so that we would redound to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 1, 1-14, I probably stumbled and bumbled and missed a part here or there, but oh man, what a paragraph, what a passage. Last week, Jim introduced us to the book of Ephesians and took us on that tour, uh, the tour bus, the microphone, all around the city of Ephesians. And today we're going to get off the bus and just take a look at one of these incredible attractions <laughs> called the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's two parts to verses 1 to 14. Gospel greetings, gospel blessings. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 to 14. Now under each one of those, I got a few little subpoints because y'all know me. But I don't really care if you get the points or the subpoints. It, it is essential that we have some accurate understanding of these words. That's what preaching is for. It's why God's ordained it. But our main goal is not words, it's worship. In this text, 
the writer, it's the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit, he is overwhelmed. He is swept into a tsunami of agape love. He is so overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is erupting in Godward praise. This is worship. Yes, it's words. But if you get the words right and don't worship, you've totally missed the point. In the original Greek, you may have heard this before, verses 3 to 14 is one long run-on sentence. It is Paul not being able to come up for air by the time he injects another reality of the gospel. Under spirit inspiration, he is writing. But in his heart, he is reveling. He is exulting in the wonders of salvation. His heart is captured by the triune God who has saved us by the blood of His Son. Now, let me try to define worship. It may not be the best definition. I've heard some other good ones, maybe better ones. But one good definition of worship is being preoccupied with God. That means totally captured. Completely captivated. Enamored. Taken away. I don't know if that's happening to you right now. It's probably not happening to everybody. But there are moments for Christians under gospel preaching where just for a second we're transported to the third heaven. It's like everything fades away and God is front and center. That's worship. When you're preoccupied with God. That's what's happening to Paul in this passage. So as we walk through these two points, my main prayer is that God would catapult our heart into the heavens. And that like Paul, our souls too would joyfully sing his praise to the praise of the glory of your grace, to the praise of your glory. So gospel greetings and gospel blessings. All with a prayer and a hope and an aim that God will take this stumbling, bumbling preacher and help you by the Holy Spirit to be thrown before the face of God. You would see him and take joy in him. So under gospel greetings, I have two things I want to say about verses 1 and 2. First, the author and his authority. And then second, the audience and their affirmation. So who's the author and what is his authority? Well, it says right at the beginning of the book, Paul. That's the author. What's his authority? An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So under gospel greetings, number one, the author and his authority. Who is this Paul? Well, some of you know, and you may be able to remember, but let me just catch us all up to speed. You remember the life story of this man? Born in the tribe of Benjamin, trained in the best schools that the Jews could offer. He earned his PhD in the Law of Moses, the Old Testament Torah. He studied under the most revered scholar of his day, Gamaliel. He knew the Bible. But, regardless of his pedigree, tribe of Benjamin, his academic degrees, his PhD in the Bible, he never truly understood the Word of God because he never really knew, knew experientially, relationally, he never knew the God of the Word. He was so zealous for his gross misunderstanding of the Bible, which he could quote to you, that he made it his life mission to violently persecute anyone who claimed that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of the Old Testament message that he thought he knew so well. Until 
that man, Saul of Tarsus, was on his way with the king's edict in his hand to Damascus to arrest and imprison any followers of, quote, the way. That's what they called Christianity. And while he's on his journey to persecute those followers of Jesus, he's knocked off his horse by the shockwave of the blinding beauty of the glory of the risen Jesus of Nazareth. On that roadside, then and there, Saul of Tarsus was soundly converted. He was forgiven by that Jesus of his heinous sin against God, including especially his self-righteousness. And he was by faith united to Jesus forever. So the author of this book is that man. And he did what anybody who meets that Jesus would do. What did he do for the next three years? He sought to learn as much about Jesus through the Bible as he could. He relearned the pages of the Old Testament that he thought he knew so well. And he did something else. He sought to tell as many people the gospel message as he could. Gospel means good news. He just kept telling the good news to everybody within earshot. As a result of his irreversible commitment to glorify Christ, this man, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, name changed to Paul the Apostle, was eventually put in prison in Rome. They thought that might shut him up. And it was from that imprisonment he wrote this letter, the book of Ephesians. It was also in that imprisonment that he wrote Galatians, Philippians, and Philemon. So one application we can already draw from the author, Paul, is that no matter what hardship the Christian may experience, no matter what challenging or suffering we may endure, God has a plan for the glorification of his name in and through our suffering. So that's a little bit about the author, but I said I also wanted to tell you something about his authority. So our first sub-point is the author and his authority. This is under gospel greetings. What is his authority? He says in verse 1, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We talked about this in our Bible study class this morning that the criteria to be an apostle, the word apostle means sent out. The criteria to be an apostle of Jesus was that you must have encountered the risen Lord Jesus. After his death, after his burial, when he rose from the dead, you had to have seen him, encountered him. And that must have been substantiated by other people so that you couldn't just lie about it or have had a hallucination and thought you saw somebody you didn't see, other people confirmed it. When Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's fundamentally asserting he saw Jesus, he talked with him, and he didn't appoint himself. This isn't just his book, a bunch of late great ideas that he's had. This is God's word through him to his churches. So when Paul pulls the apostle card in verse one, He's doing something. He's letting the church at Ephesus know that he understands that the words he's now writing are the very words of God. And therefore, these words, whether you agree with it or not, 
are binding on your conscience. And not only do they bind your conscience, these words are also included among the standard that the God of the universe will use one day to judge you. That's what he's doing when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To proceed beyond verse 1, Paul is declaring that the reader is encountering divine speech. One commentary said Paul is conscious that his words possess unique authority for the whole church of God because he knows he's an apostle through the will of God. And it was the personal appearance of the risen Lord Jesus to Paul which transformed that persecutor into a witness now sent forth to preach the very gospel he tried to overthrow. So the author and his authority, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Second subpoint under gospel greetings, the audience and their affirmation. This is subpoint two, the audience. Who's this to and what does he affirm or declare to them? The audience is in verse one, the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we know this is a congregation of Christians in Ephesus, the saints who are at Ephesus. Unlike many of Paul's letters to local churches, the book of Ephesians has no real problem that Paul's addressing. When he writes to the Galatians and the Corinthians and Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus, he's got some problems that he's addressing with the gospel. Ephesians is not like that. There's no apparent problem in Ephesus that Paul's writing to address. Now, he does bring application to bear on all of life from the gospel. But instead, he's writing to this congregation that he knew very well and loved very deeply. He was their pastor for three and a half years long before he got put in prison. He knew them, he loved them, and he says this about them. They are saints and they are faithful. That's the audience. And just like, what does he mean by saints and faithful? Saints is holy ones. Faithful is obedient subject. This is connecting the church at Ephesus to all the saints of the Old Testament. Here's one confirmation of that, Leviticus 19, God calls his people holy ones, saints. And in Exodus 19, when he speaks to them and gives them commandments, he calls them to faithfully serve him. I could go to a lot of other passages to say what Paul is doing in this greeting is saying, you are among the people of God that he's been redeeming from the world since Genesis 3. You're saints and you're faithful in this local church at Ephesus. He's seeking more deeply to form their corporate identity. Y'all are saints. Y'all are faithful. He's trying to help them see that their salvation is not primarily individual, though it's very personal. It's not private. God has saved them into a people. He's writing this, I remind you, to a church. They're not solitary Christians. They're part of the interconnected work that God has been doing of bringing his children into his family. And they are to function as such. That's how he says hello. John Wesley said, truly the New Testament knows nothing of a solitary Christianity. You can't follow Jesus by yourself. And that's the way Paul says, hello. 
So before we leave our first point, gospel greetings, let your eyes fall on a little phrase, verses 1 and 2. In Christ Jesus. You see those words in verse 2? In Christ Jesus. Those are precious words. Read them slowly. Read them deliberately. In Christ Jesus. Those three words are the heart of all of Paul's theology. Everything he writes in the book of Ephesians is aiming to unpack the treasures that are bound up in those three words. And if you are one of the people in Christ Jesus, you already know the preciousness of what those words represent. And Paul is trying to peel the layers for you to see the blessings that are bound up for you in him. Jeffrey Wilson wrote in his commentary, it is not too much to say that the whole of Paul's experience and teaching of Christ is summed up in the phrase, in Christ Jesus, upon which the entire epistle of the Ephesians is just one large commentary on those three words. So, the audience, the church at Ephesus, these this collection of Christians who are covenanted together as a local congregation, saints and faithful. And then he gives them an affirmation. It's a divine blessing. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say two things about that affirmation, that blessing. First, there's a preposition, from. Grace to you and peace, from. And then there's two people. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It actually says God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Tyndale commentary says these two words are in fact twin themes of this letter and the gospel of Christ itself. Grace and peace come from God our Father as the source of all things and the Lord Jesus Christ who by what he has done has brought all God's blessings to us as his people. The word from links father and son inseparably and equally. The only grace that God gives comes from all three persons of the Trinity. Grace and peace to you. Second thing I want to say is that not only is the father and son linked inseparably and equally by that one preposition, but also look at the relationship you have with this God. He is, look at it carefully, verse 2, God our Father. Now look at verse 3. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whose Father is He? Yes. He is the Father of Jesus, our Lord, verse 3, and He is God our Father. Now, I don't mean to bore you. I mean to help you worship. Notice this. The gospel brings you into a relationship with God that is not like the relationship Jesus has with him. It's identical. He doesn't deify you. You will never become God. Contra all the false religions. You're never going to be deified. But the way God the Son relates to God the Father is exactly the relationship He's given you with God the Father. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, His Father, verse 3, is your Father, verse 2. It's amazing. So in our first point, we've tried to say, 
that the author and his authority, Paul the Apostle, and the audience and the affirmation, the church at Ephesus, and this grace and peace. That's actually a microcosm of the whole book as well. The way the Hebrews, the Jews to this day, if you go to Israel, here's how they're going to say hello. Shalom. That's how they say hello. That word is peace. In the New Testament, it's a different Greek word, but Paul is playing on that. Grace is the Greek way, the Gentile way. Instead of saying hello, they say irony, peace. Uh, I'm sorry, grace and peace. Uh, sorry, charis is grace. They'll say charis, grace. Hebrews will say shalom, peace. What's Paul doing the rest of this letter? He shows how Jew and Gentile are united in Christ as one family. Literally, in this introduction, he's squeezing down all the theology he's about to unpack. So Paul's the author. His authority is he's an apostle. The audience is the Christian church, saints and faithful ones, and the affirmation, grace and peace come to you from the one triune God. That's our first point. Second and main point, verses 3 to 14, gospel blessings. We've seen gospel greetings. Now verse 3 to 14, gospel blessings. There's going to be three sub-points, Father, Son, Spirit. But before we get there, I want your eyes to fall on verse 3. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the point of the passage. This is the message Paul wants his readers to both grasp and believe. God has withheld nothing from his children. I mean, if an evil father knows how to give bread to his son who asked for a stone and would not give a snake to his son who asked for a fish, your good father is going to give you everything good for you. And verse 3 is the point that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul wants you to know that if you are in Christ, you are the possessor, the owner of every heavenly blessing. And he's writing because he wants this in Christness. I said, in Christ Jesus is all of Paul's theology. He wants this in Christness that belongs to Christians to dominate your heart and dominate your life. That's why he's writing. Verse 3 is teaching us that if God were to stretch out his infinite arms, and grab all the blessings that he could fit in his, into his grasp and then pour them on top of your head for endless eternities, the way he would do it is give you his son. Or more specifically, give you to his son. There's a very radical biblical truth that Jesus must be in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. There's also a very radical biblical truth that you must be in Him. That's what this passage is about. And for all who are in Him, Paul says in verse 3, main point, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to you by God. What blessings, Paul? That's the rest of the passage. You're chosen, predestined, 
recipient of an incessant flow of free grace. You're redeemed by the bloody death of Jesus. All your sins are forgiven. Grace, this is a Bible word, is being lavished on you. It's like getting hit with a tsunami every split second. Being dominated by grace. That's what's yours in Christ. Whether you feel like it or not. You know the unknowable. The mystery of God's will which is purposed in Christ. You know that something's coming that pagans don't know. You, you deeply intuitively as a Christian this is one of your blessings in Christ you know that everything's going to be summed up in Jesus he's the final finish line and seated on the judgment throne for everyone and all things you also have obtained an inheritance what is it it is a solid lasting enduring hope in Christ how did you get these blessings you heard and believe the gospel. How did you believe the gospel? The Holy Spirit opened your eyes. And upon your belief, He sealed you. He took up residence in you as the guarantee, the pledge, that God's going to finish the work that He started so that you will be, verse 4, holy and blameless before Him. You are the inheritance that God guaranteed to give to His Son before the world began. These are the blessings you have in Christ. Not only are all of these blessings, I've just listed no less than 15 in this passage, not only are all of these blessings ours in Christ, but all of this happened for the way the King James put it, God's good pleasure. He was just happy to do it. Our Christ-centered, Christ-wrought, eternal blessings of redemption and salvation are a byproduct. That's all the fruit of, verse 5, the kind intention of God's will. Oh, the King James says, God's good pleasure. He was just happy to give you all these blessings in Christ. Verse 9, according to His kind intention. Again, King James, according to God's good pleasure. Verse 11, according to the counsel of His will. Why did God do it? Because God wanted to do it. And He wasn't upset about it. He's thrilled. He's exuberantly happy to save you and to bless you. I love the way the New Living Translation renders verse 5. Listen with all your might. God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do. And it gave Him great pleasure. Now, let's go a little deeper. He did it because He wanted to. He, he blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ because it gave Him great pleasure. But what's the reason? three times you know the symbol smash verse 6 verse 12 verse 14 to the praise of the glory of his grace to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory when I said Paul is writing yes but he's worshiping mainly do you hear this you have every blessing in Christ Christian God's withheld nothing good from you he was happy to do it his good pleasure and he did it for his glory so that you would worship him I pray this sermon in some small way would be a means to that end. That you and I, that we 
be reminded of some gospel realities, and that our heart, like the flower to the sun, would open to the God of the universe, and we would involuntarily erupt with joy that we are loved by the King. Keep in mind that Paul wrote these words again from a prison. It's even there and then that he wanted the Ephesian congregation to know the unfathomable blessings that belong to them in Jesus. Because Paul knows the grand truth of all truth. Here it is. If your heart, if my heart, is raptured by love to Jesus, by seeing the infinite realities of what the triune God has done for us in the Gospel, and will forever do for us in Christ, then our whole life is going to be marked and dominated and consumed with the joy of living for Christ until we see His lovely face. That's why Paul begins by saying, let me just tell you what the God of the universe has done for you in Christ. It opens with this Christ-centered worship and then it closes with the same declaration. Grace be, Ephesians 6.24, with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Period. End of book. So I said, we'll just take a quick glance at these blessings that are ours in Christ under those three headings of our triune God. The work of God the Father, the work of God the Son, the work of God the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go through all the little phrases. There's, oh, there's a reason Lloyd-Jones preached 12 years on Ephesians. But I want to show you in verses 3 to 6, the work of God the Father. I want to show you in 4 to 12, I'm sorry, 7 to 12, the work of God the Son. In verse 13 and 14, the work of God the Holy Spirit. I've already told you verse 3 is the main idea. Every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's yours, that's yours, that's yours. And verses 4 to 6 tell us about the work of God the Father. Two things I'm going to draw out from that section. First, verse 4, He chose you before the foundation of the world so that you would be holy and blameless before Him. It's okay to wrestle with that mysterious work of God's providence. It's okay. It's okay. read Charles Simeon's sermon on this passage this week, and he just said, if you get upset by thinking about election and predestination, and your soul gets worried and in turmoil, just stop thinking about it. It's okay. You have to fight about it. If you're totally convinced that those things are true, biblically, you will be. You don't have to get mad at anybody else for not believing or wrestling through it. Paul's not doing argumentation. He's doing exaltation. This man almost cannot believe that God saved him. He believes it. He just almost cannot believe it. Me? 
why would he save me? The answer is, he shouldn't. And he definitely, quote Spurgeon, Jordan's broken record quote, you know what's coming if you've been here any length of time. He definitely didn't choose you after you were born. So Spurgeon says, he must have chosen me before I was born because he definitely wouldn't have chosen me after. When did he choose you? In some eternal counsel among the triune God, when only he knew that he was going to be pleased to create a world and a universe and inhabit it with image bearers called human beings who would rebel against him and plummet themselves into hell-deserving sin, he knew that he was going to give to his son a bride to show how great Jesus is. He chose you before the foundation of the world so that you would be holy and blameless before him. That's amazing. He chose you owing to nothing in you. He did not pick you because you're better or greater. He did it so that one day, like metal put into a fire and pulled out and having the dross scraped off, or like a perfect mirror reflecting the image before it, or like the moon reflecting the light of the sun, one day when you stand before King Jesus, you will shine with the brilliance of His holiness. And you will be totally clean in His presence, blameless. That's why He chose you. To show how great He is. In verse 5, another work of the Father. This is so sweet. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, daughters, don't get upset. You're not left out. But this is really important. It's why Galatians majors on sonship. It's not leaving you out. It's telling you a privilege. Sons and daughters, you can say that. That's okay. That's not the translation. You're adopted like a son. Do you know the Old Testament pattern of sonship? And how the firstborn son gets all the inheritance? That's yours. If you're in Christ, you're adopted as a son. You're an inheritor of every blessing God can find. One of the great battlegrounds of the Christian heart is believing that you are what God says you are. And we have here one of the most precious gospel truths of all. And I say one of the most precious because sometimes I know I'm given to overstatement. I, too much, too flowery too comprehensive, too exhaustive. So I'll quote J.I. Packer. The highest privilege of the gospel is adoption. There's nothing better than this. He predestined us to adoption like a son. In salvation, you're brought into God's family through Christ this is why verse 2 refers to God as our Father, and verse 3 refers to God as Jesus' Father. You're as related to God as Jesus is. You may not have many people who love you. You may currently be surrounded by people who should love you but hurt you. 
But this passage is telling you, you have a Father in heaven who is so glad that you are His that He was happy to give you the family name, Christian. You're His by adoption. He wanted you. He chose you. He sought you. He bought you. He loves you. The work of the Father is choosing and predestinating unto adoption as sons. The work of the Son, verses 7 to 12. A couple of things I want to say about the work of the Son, mainly verse 7. These are gospel privileges. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Oh, man. So we've seen already the Father planned our salvation. Now we're seeing the Son accomplished our salvation. When Isaiah 53 says, 700 years before Jesus was born, that the Father was pleased to crush His Son if the Son would render Himself as a guilt offering. That's what we're talking about now. The Father planned our salvation knowing what it would cost. What's the cost for us to be adopted sons of God? Answer, the blood of Christ. This is the accomplishment of our salvation. The Father planned, the Son accomplished. We're about to see the Spirit applies. But the Son's accomplishment, verse 7, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Precious souls, tune your soul to verse 7. The Lord speaking of redemption and remission. Payment and forgiveness. Redemption through His blood. Forgiveness of our trespasses. This is two things. Look at this. This is the cause, the reason, the ground that God says you're mine. And you're clean. What's the cause? What's the reason? What's the ground? His blood. This is the precious Gospel. This is the bloody cross of Jesus. This is the sacrificed Lamb. Here in verse 7, the blood of Christ, what you're seeing is the payment price for all your guilt and shame, for all your sins. And right here at the same time, in the same blood, at that same ugly cross, you're seeing the fountain to wash you clean in God's sight. I said there's 2,400 prisoners roughly on death row. That number would be around 2,600, but I told you 196 of them have been exonerated and released since 1973. All 196 of them expressed intense jubilation and joy. That's what's happening in this text, only different. If you have no redemption and no forgiveness, then all verse 7 leaves you with is trespasses. What verse 7 is saying is you're on death row. God says you're guilty. And then He lets you go free. None of the 196 got that uh, decision in court. How is God able to do that? How, how, how can He remain God and forgive your sin? How can He remain God and, and redeem you? Would you be free? Would you live? Would you 
Would you have life? Would you have joy? Would you have peace? Would you have grace? Flee to the cross. Go to the blood of Christ. The payment price for your pardon and your pleasure forever before God is in, quote, His blood. Jesus is so valuable that God can look upon His one sacrifice and forgive every sinner that will come to Him for refuge. This is all owing to God. So there's two things I wanted to say about the work of the Son. The last thing I'm going to say about the work of the Son is this. The Father planned your redemption. The Son accomplished it. But that accomplishment, my, my, my. If you want a verse on God's sovereignty, I think the most power-packed single verse on the sovereignty of God in the whole Bible is verse 11. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after counsel of His will. And that's in the context of verse 7. We were predestined to what? Adoption as sons. Who works all things like what? The cross of Christ. According to His purpose, nobody put Jesus on the cross except for God. This is His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. That's why little phrases get a lot of traction among Christian churches for good reason. You are so bad that Jesus had to die for you and you are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you. The work of the Son is to accomplish your redemption. So the Father planned, the Son accomplished, last but not least, the Spirit applies. This is verses 13 and 14. Drink it in, Grace Church. This is our God. Verse 13 and 14, the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Upon gospel proclamation, that's what's happening to you right now. If somebody explains the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth for the forgiveness of your sins, for your reconciliation with God, the work that God did in Christ that you must believe, you must, you must believe, and you must repent of all other hope of being saved and turn from sin to Christ. Upon that kind of gospel proclamation, the hearts of God's elect are opened to hear, receive, and believe upon Christ. We cast this gospel net like I just did, and through it, God pulls to Himself those whom He gave Christ from before the foundation of the world. Verse 13 teaches us that one of the eternal blessings, verse 3, that are ours in the gospel, according to verse 13, is that the Holy Spirit seals, S-E-A-L-S, seals all those who are in Christ. He doesn't give them a seal. He is the seal. Like in the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 7, when before the floods came and everybody said, Noah, you're a fool, you're an idiot. You're chopping down all these trees, you're building this big old boat, it's never rained. What are you doing? You're wasting your life, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your energy, all your craftsmanship. Think of all the good you could have done. Noah just kept saying, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. Never been rain, you're a fool. Then, when Noah and his family, all the animals were on board, Genesis 7, 16, 
Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. The reason the ark didn't leak is not because Noah was a good craftsman. The reason the ark didn't leak, no water in, no animals or people out, is because God knows how to set a seal. Similarly, all who are in Christ are sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's no leak. You get all of God upon true conversion. He will keep you to the end. He seals you until the day of redemption. And the evidence that you are His and that He will finish the work He began in you is verse 14. He gives you the Holy Spirit as a pledge. As a down payment, as a deposit, as a guarantee, as a first fruit. He gives you Himself to prove that He's going to bring you all the way to Himself. He's the pledge. He's the seal. The Father plans our redemption. The Son accomplished our redemption. The Holy Spirit applies our redemption upon hearing and believing the Gospel. So my application is fourfold. Number one, hear and believe the Gospel. Verse 12 says, after hearing the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Not everybody is sealed. Everybody's not on their way to heaven. Not everybody's inside Noah's ark. Most of the world perished then. Most of the world will perish in the age to come. But those who are in the ark, those who are in Christ, those who have believed the gospel, trusted that Christ died for their sins, that he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven, he's the judge of all the earth. Those are sealed, so be a verse 12 person. Hear and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Throw yourself into the arms of Christ. He will save you. He will be so happy to bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places forever. It's application number one. Number two, I say this to my heart and to all of us who know ourselves to be in Christ. Return to your first love. The church at Ephesus got this letter and then by the time of Revelation, not too long later, Jesus said, you left your first love. Return to your first love. Worship God. Worship. I say that because that's what this passage is really all about. Yes, it's good gospel theology. Father, Son, Spirit. Blessings on blessings on blessings. Yes, it's all that. But it's really a response of worship. The more Paul meditates on the gospel, the more his heart erupts in praise. Worship. Now, I've I've thought of a lot of ways to do this moment of this sermon, and I'm just going to do it the normal way. I'm going to keep talking to you. I've thought of having you stand and talk to people and turn to your neighbor or sing songs. I, I thought of a lot of different stuff. But right here and now, is life hard? Is worship inconvenient? Paul was in prison. Christians are first and foremost worshipers. He has won our heart with His love, so return to Him. Sing praises to Him. Soak your soul in the depths of the gospel. Meditate on verses 3 to 14. Watch your heart launch like a rocket in Godward praise. 
Be preoccupied with God the more you think about his gospel love. God will renew to you the joy of his salvation as you worship him, praise him, bask in his gospel love, meditate on the gospel until your heart repeatedly ex explodes with the refrain of verses 3 to 14, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. I mean, if you can remember a time that you enjoyed worship, and that's been a long time ago, just go back to worship. Refresh your heart in Christ. Number one, believe the gospel. Number two, return to your first love. Number three, unite your life with a gospel-dominated church. Nothing is going to more shape your life than the local church to which you're united. And I could caveat that with a couple of other things. But it's not independent of the church, even when I caveat it. The beautiful gospel passage that I've just tried to say something true about was written to a church. Could you imagine being a member of a church like that? That, that loves that God and that gospel and those blessings? That revels in that redeeming blood and that remission of sins? that says we are so happy that God was pleased to give us these blessings and we are very glad that he did it to the praise of his own glory and not for us. Could you imagine being part of a congregation like that? Unite your life to a church like that. By the way, all the pronouns are plural. Verse 2, you is plural, ours, our is plural. And then you get our, us, us, we, us, 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 we, you plural, your plural, our plural. It's not written to an individual Christian. You're not meant to be able to sustain this Godward gaze and heart Godward worship on your own. You can't do it. Your love will soon grow cold if you don't stay by the fire of a gospel-dominated church. Entire congregations are filled with joyous praise and Jesus-centered unity. That's the book of Ephesians the more we get our eyes off of ourselves and together onto the wonders of the gospel and the blessings that are ours in Christ. Ephesians 1 is what a happy church looks like because Ephesians 1 is what a God-centered church looks like. Father, Son, Spirit, worship. So, believe the gospel, return to your first love, unite your life to a gospel-dominated church, and finally, look to the future. Paul was in prison. Life wasn't the best. But gospel promises do something to you no matter what your circumstances say to you. Like, look to the future, you will be... Stay. You will be holy and blameless before God. You're not totally holy right now. You're a saint. You're a holy one. You're positionally holy. You're being made practically holy. You're growing in Christ's likeness. But that's going to be an imperfect process until the day you die. But then, like your justification, your glorification is going to be instant. You will be holy before God. Believe that. Look forward to that day. Verse 10 
Look to the future. The summing up of all things in Christ. God has already given all authority in heaven and on earth to His risen Son. That's in His hand. He's the King of the cosmos. He's ruling the nations. He's totally in charge of this fall's presidential election. Nothing's taking Him by surprise. Everything's going to be summed up in Christ. Look to the future. In verse 14, Paul says to this little church in Ephesus, until the redemption of God's own possession. That's you. Like, you may get a little frustrated with your fellow church member or the ones that live in your house. You may find yourself at odds. You may think that others are against you or not serving you well or not loving you enough. I'm not trying to minimize that even by the way I'm saying it. Like, welcome to life. I'm going to fail you. I don't want to. All your pastors here will fail you. All of us. We'll do it multiple times. We don't want to. Your fellow church members don't want to fail you. We certainly don't want to sin against each other. But Paul said to this church, you are the people that are going to be redeemed as God's own possession. What if you looked at your fellow church member, pastor or otherwise, as somebody that you're going to be next to 10 million years from now glorified? How might that relate to the way you treat them and pursue unity with them and pray for them and serve them? If you believe you're headed there with Christ with them, it's going to affect everything, which is what Paul's saying to him in verse 14. So I'll stop here. Owing to God's good pleasure alone, owing to the purpose of His will, the kind intention of His will, God has chosen you and predestined you to belong to Him. The triune God conspired together before you existed and out of His own good pleasure and to the praise of the glory of His grace to save you. Your salvation is all God-centered, God-accomplished for the glory of God. And God was happy to save you so that He could unleash His entire repository, His entire treasure chest of goodness on you forever. Ephesians 2 is going to say He saved you to be kind, K-I-N-D, nice, to you forever. That's why He saved you. He just wants to be nice to you. That's why He did it. That's what your redemption's about in Christ. You're released from your sins. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're reconciled to God and to His people. That's what's true. No matter how you feel, no matter what happens, that is true. You're brought into God's family. You're His adopted child. You're set free unto Christ. And those are the heavenly blessings that are yours in Him. Let's pray together.